0: If you, I uh, believe it's in the next page there, on page 11 of your worship folder, we're going to read from Hebrews chapter 13 this morning for our uh, passage that we'll look at uh, together. And so um, feel free to follow along and, uh, and then we'll, uh, we'll jump into this passage. This is, what, uh, this is God's Word. Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the Word of God, Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same, yesterday and today and forever. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So, this past Wednesday, we had a congregational meeting, and and we opened up a period of nominations for the office of elder and deacon that will run through the end of this month. And so, we've been taking this month of January to to explore this topic of church leadership in the scriptures, and we started out with Ephesians chapter 4, the primary theme of which was rooting this whole discussion and the biblical teaching on this topic and the work of Jesus. And Paul's teaching in Ephesians 4 that Jesus has given gifts to his church. And included in that bundle of beautiful gifts and treasures that he has poured out on his people are leaders. And then we moved on and looked at 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1 and Acts chapter 6 among some others, to look at what are, what are these offices in the church, their characteristics and the qualifications. And so this is going to be our last week looking at this topic, and next week we're going to resume our series back in the book of Genesis. Uh, so well, this will be our last week looking at this. But before we do that, um, I want to actually look at this theme from the vantage point of where you sit from the vantage point of where God's people sit. We've been looking at this topic from the vantage point of the, of the officers and uh, their qualifications and et cetera, et cetera. But now, this week, I want to take a chance to look at it from where you sit. What does the partnership look like? How does it work out? And to do this, we're going to take a look at these two passages that we just read from, Ephes- uh, from Hebrews chapter 13. And I I once heard the book of Hebrews described, um, and it's not just a book, it's actually a letter to a group of Christians in the first century, and I I heard this book described as intense pastoral counseling. And I've never forgotten it, because uh, if you've ever read this book, it is incredibly rich and profound and deep, and it can be difficult to kind of get your mind wrapped around. And once I heard that, this is intense pastoral counseling, I was like, that's it. That, that kind of ties it together for me. And why would somebody describe the book that way? And, and I think this is why. It's written to a, a community of Christians who are experiencing opposition. They're experiencing suffering. They are experiencing challenges to living the life of faith. Which is also why, when, if we were to spend some more time working our way through the book of Hebrews, and maybe we will at some point... It's written to a community that we could say is on the way. They're a journeying community. And in fact, in this very chapter, the the writer describes uh, God's people as on the way to the city that is to come. That we're not yet home. And in fact, the, the author describes the church as a wilderness community. In chapters three and four. And where does where does he get that imagery from? He gets that imagery from the Old Testament, particularly the Book of Exodus, and especially the Book of Numbers, to describe God's people as they've been brought out of the land of Egypt in four hundred years of slavery, and they're journeying on to the promised land. And the writer of Hebrews describes you and me and this church and, and the church. Global, as a wilderness community, navigating the circumstances and the challenges and and the weather and the frustrations of a journey, of a trip on the way. And the question for us is, how does a community in that situation relate to its leaders? And so I want to look at this passage and give us, first of all, a general orientation to that question. And then I want to look at two, the two specific direc- directions that we see in Hebrews 13. And then I want to finish by looking at Jesus never changes. So a general orientation, two specific directions, and then Jesus never changes. So first, what's a general orientation? What do I mean by that? How should you, as a person of faith in the church or even if you're here and you, you, you've yet to put your faith in Jesus or, or you just, this isn't for you, how would you understand? How do Christians uh, relate to those in leadership in the church? And I want to borrow, I said this last week, but I think it's important enough to repeat again and emphasize. As we've looked at the office of elder and deacon, one of the things that we've noticed is that Paul brings into this Conversation and into this topic the ideas of, of marriage and the home and parenting. And I actually want to build on that to help you understand what should be your posture and attitude as a member in the church in relationship and partnership with your leaders. And I want to take us and use the idea of marriage to help with this. Particularly, I mentioned this last week, What does God say back in the earliest chapters of Genesis when Adam is alone? God says, it's not good for man to be alone. And then he says what? I will make a helper fit for him. And I want you to think about that situation and that that idea and apply it to us in the church. That this term helper oftentimes is understood as a, as a term of inferiority or denoting weakness. And I, I want to continue to try to deconstruct that and um, move you away from thinking that. Because it's simply not how the Bible describes and use the, uses that term helper, particularly with respect to marriage but equally is true with respect to applying this idea to our partnership in the life of the church. Why do I say that? Because God is described as our helper more than anyone or anything else in all of Scripture. Therefore, for you to be a helper cannot mean that you are in a position of inferiority, or weakness. And in fact, in the very passages that we're looking at uh, this morning, a few verses before verse 7, listen to what we read. It says, Keep your life free from love of money and be content with what you have. For God has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? See, the term helper describes actually a person of strength in a position to meaningfully and substantially help another who is incomplete and insufficient on their own. So, here's how I want you to think about this. As a member in this church... I want you to think about yourself as a helper in this sense. And I want you to think about your leaders as men who are insufficient on their own. I want you to think about your leaders as as men who need your help. Leaders in the church are not leaders because they are sufficient in and of themselves. And we could probably spend the rest of our time delineating just situation after situation where leaders who act like they are sufficient in themselves leads to absolute ruin and dishonor to the Lord Jesus. So I want you to, first of all, this general orientation, I want you to think about yourself as a helper in this sense. And what's one practical way you can do that? One practical way you can do that is to take seriously your privilege and responsibility to nominate officers in this church. That is one area that we need your help. And I'm pressing you to take that seriously, to pray about that, to think through that, to talk to those that you might think of, I I might like to nominate you to be an elder or a deacon. Could could we talk about that? That is a beautiful conversation for us to have in this church. Now, with that general orientation, what might be some of the, the, the more specific directions of what it would look like to be a helper In this sense. And what I want to do is I want to look at um, two specific specific directions that we find here in Hebrews chapter 13. The first one here is in verse 7. Look with me. It says, remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God, consider the outcome of their way of life, and imitate their faith. So first of all, here's the first direction. Remember your leaders. almost all the commentators that uh, in this passage understand that in, in its original context, the writer here is referring to most likely those leaders in the past who helped to establish this faith community and either have died or for whatever reason have had to go somewhere else and This writer is saying, remember those leaders. And in particular, what does it say here? And what the point of this is in remembering your leaders is to realize that for you and I, we are not the first ones to have tried to live the life of faith. We are not the first ones to face questions and doubts and struggles and insecurities and opportunities and challenges. There's actually others that have gone before us who have faced the exact same kinds of things. And we would do well to remember them. And why why does he say this? Why just this idea of remembering? Well, if you were to look back into chapter 11 in Hebrews, it's often referred to as the Hall of Faith, where the writer actually gives us this list of heroes of the faith in chapter 11 throughout the Old Testament right up to the New Testament. And when you look at that list, you know, it's, it's kind of a, a bit ironic to call them the heroes of the faith because when you go back and look at these characters in the Bible, they're not great because of what they did. They are great because of the God they followed. So to remember your leaders is much more about the God they believe in than their own successes and failures as your leaders. Which is why we're told here how are we to pay attention? You're to pay attention by considering the outcome of their way of life. Now, what does what that, that refer to here? In all likelihood, what this refers to is both how they lived, but also how they died. In other words, you're getting to see a person live the full experience as a human being, the side of heaven. And particularly, we're to look to our leaders for practical help on how to live the life of faith. And not just the ways they get it right or they're helpful to you, but especially the ways that you see them handle their failures how they handle their successes, how they handle their weaknesses and their sorrows. In other words, what you and I are called here to pay attention to is everything about their lives and then what what are we to do as we do that? We're to imitate their faith. Why does he say imitate their faith? Notice he doesn't say imitate their schooling choices. Imitate the way that they use their money. Imitate Where they choose to live. Imitate the specific family dynamics and and strategies that they employ. All of those are fine and good. I'm not saying you don't pay attention to them and learn. But what he says here is to imitate their faith. So what is being said here is that we are being called to imitate our leader's love and devotion to Jesus. Jesus. In other words, what would be the the opposite of that? The opposite of imitating a leader's faith will lead us to imitate their personality or their preferences. And what that is, is a cult of personality. And that will ruin a church. Because every leader is but an under-shepherd. They don't lead for their own sake. And we'll see this in just a moment. So first of all, we're to remember our leaders, but we're, we're called to remember our leaders, but and especially those that have gone before us. But what about right now and here today? We're to obey our leaders and to submit to them. Verse 17, obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. Now, I think it goes without saying that, again, here we are. We're, we're faced with these words, obey and submit. Uh, that just grates against all the sensibilities of the American way of living. Uh, we are independent people. Uh, we do not like the idea that we would have to submit or obey anyone. And yet, what I, what I want you to think about here, though, is that, that that's really not a sustain, sustainable way to live. None of you actually follow through on perhaps how that grates against your sensibility. And let's think about this in terms of this passage. Remember the, the wilderness imagery? The idea that these people are on their way. Think of this like an expedition. Uh, you're, you're being led through circumstances and and terrain and weather and uh, forks in the road and doubts and questions and ups and downs and you don't know how to get where you're going. How are you going to get there? You're going to get there by listening To your leaders. I can't, I just kept thinking about you know all of the Everest movies. And you're not going to get to the top of Everest on your own. Uh, You need people who will lead and guide you to get there. And the life of faith is just like that. And so what I want you to think about here is as we look at this direction to remember and uh, to, to obey and submit to your leaders. I want us to remember something I said last week, that authority is handed over. It can't be coerced. So what does it mean then to obey in this passage? This term obey also carries with it the idea of to be persuaded. What you're being called to do here is to allow someone else who's been called by God to serve and love you, to lead you, into the word of God and to receive the teaching of those people. It means that you are willing to be led into the scriptures and to be taught. Now what that also means is that you should never say I believe this or that teaching because pastor or elder or Christian guru said so. That is not with this. this is not blind obedience. What this is saying is that you should be able to say, I- I've been taught X, Y, or Z from the scriptures. My leaders have unfolded the scriptures for me. I see it there, and I believe it because my conscience and my heart have been persuaded that this is what God says. And that's why I believe it. What does it mean then to submit? As I've been saying, according to the Bible, despite how this might feel to us, to submit does not mean inferiority or weakness or inequality. Remember how we looked last week at 1 Corinthians 11 where Paul says how God is the head of Christ. Christ. That cannot mean, according to what the rest of the Bible teaches, that Jesus is somehow inferior to God. He is equal to the Father and the Spirit in power and glory. But notice how we also looked at how Christ is the head of man. And what we looked at there was, what does it mean if Jesus is in authority, how does he exercise his authority? He exercises authority by denying himself even to the point of dying on the cross. So, what does it mean then to submit? It means yielding to one who exercises authority to seek after your good. Now, why should we do that? Because your leaders keep watch over your souls. I've been struck by this phrase this week at the gravity of that. That as your pastor and as your other elders here, our calling is to keep watch over your souls. And literally, what that term means is to lie awake at night. And uh, I, I just know from conversations that that's actually true. Not every night, not even most weeks, but there are definitely times when when your elders and I can even think of times where we've been awake at night, thinking about you, praying for you, worried about you, even fearful like, how do we love these people that God has called us to love? Our job is to keep watch over your souls. And furthermore, that calling. To submit and obey to your leaders. Why, do, why should you do that? They keep watch over your souls, but also because they are accountable and they are responsible. Those who will have to give an account. Now, this is one of the most sobering phrases in the Bible for an elder or in a Pastor. And the reason is because I can't just blow it off. I must give account to Jesus for the care that I provide you in his name. And when I read that, it just, that's when Paul says, who is fit for these things? Why should you obey and submit your leaders? Because your leaders are accountable to Jesus. In other words, we are here to serve him by serving you. And then the writer here finishes with why? The third why? Because we are in partnership, a partnership of joy. When he says to you, let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be no advantage to you. How do we be a community where we grow and love Jesus and love our neighbors and experience the joy of God's salvation. It's when this partnership is working well. We are in a partnership of joy where it's mutually advantageous. Put it this way, I learn a lot from you This is not a one-way relationship. Your elders learn a lot from you. We are a body who is collectively growing into the fullness of Jesus. This is a partnership of joy. But here's the reality as we move to our third and last point. Times change. Leaders change. Circumstances change. So then what? That's not really a hypothetical question. And in fact, the writer brings it up in verse 9, which you don't have written here, but he says, do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings. How can you and I be sure that what we read in the scriptures is as true and relevant for us today as it was back when it was written? And the answer to that question is in verse 8. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday yesterday today and forever. Now, it's important to understand that while it is true that Jesus, as the second person of the Trinity, is eternal, infinite, unchangeable, he is the same as equal with the Father and the Son, yesterday, today, and forever. But what I really want you to think about, that's not exactly, that's true, but what I want us to think about is Jesus is the same in what sense with respect to this passage And I want us to think about this, that this is telling us that Jesus' work is the same, his word is the same, and his calling is the same. Yesterday, today, and forever. What does this mean? Jesus' work, both while he was on earth, through his death and his resurrection, through his ascension and now Seat, seated at the right hand of his Father in heaven, everything he has done is the same for us today as it was when he accomplished it. Now what that means that for us is that his word of blessing, come to me all who are weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest. That work, that invitation to experience His salvation, the new life he freely gives to sinners is the same today as it ever was. But also, his word is the same today. And and, and what, what that means for you is the pattern of the Christian life is the same today as it was when Jesus was on earth and after he died and rose again and sent his apostles to bear witness to him in Jerusalem and Judea and to the ends of the earth, and as the church has continued to carry out that calling, his word to you and how it, what it means to live in relationship with him is the same today as it was and always will be. How could we boil that down? We can boil that down into two words, repent and believe. But then also his calling is the same today. When he says in Mark chapter 8, he says, whoever would follow me, come take up your cross and deny yourself. That calling is the same for us today. That we would bear witness to him. That our lives individually as a community would bear witness to him. Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever in what he has accomplished, what he has said, and what he calls us to. Now, what that means for us is simply this. He is the same for you today, and he always will be. He is the same for us as a church, and he always will be. And he is the same for our world. And he always will be. And what I want to leave you with as we, talk, as we finish talking about the church and church leadership is I want you to, to leave you with Jesus as your chief shepherd who is the same yesterday and today and forever. And he is worth remembering. And he is worth obeying. And he is worth submitting to. And that is the calling of your church leaders. To lead you to Jesus. To remember him. And to follow him. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we give you thanks for these words, these directions. We give you thanks that you have actually given us the church. A real tangible community of people to live with and to to laugh with and to cry with and to learn with and to uh, struggle with and to have conflict with and to experience forgiveness personally even as we again and again read of your forgiveness for us despite our weaknesses and our failings and father we pray that you would give us leaders who love you first above all things and we pray father that you would give us leaders Who love your sheep. Even when it's hard. Even when it's painful. Even when it keeps us up at night. But especially. Father give us leaders. Who long to see your sheep. Delight in you. To love your word. To light up when they discover the riches of the gospel in the scriptures. And see their marriages renewed. And their children encouraged. And their friends come to faith. Father, would you please have mercy? Would you carry out your good purposes in this church? And would you work through us for the good of this city and through, through us and perhaps even ways in which we love this city, the world. And we pray all this in Jesus' name, amen.